Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. We're at sort of an odd part in our uh, schedule here this morning. Uh, For the past month, we've taken a break from Philippians to consider what life should look like in the body of Christ. All of that, of course, came in response to Paul's admonition to the Philippians to move and act as one, to contend together for the gospel. I said, uh, based off of that, let's spend a few weeks considering what that really means, uh, what it ought to look like to live that way. Well, we've done that. And so now I'd normally pick up where we left off in Philippians. The only problem is that next week, we're going to participate in a joint service uh, over at First Baptist. And then the week after that, I'm going to be on vacation. So if we got it back into Philippians this morning, it would only mean that we'd set it down again for a couple of weeks before picking it back up. And if you're familiar with my preaching style, uh, that doesn't really work too well. I like to build on ideas from week to week as we move through the text. I don't really preach standalone messages uh, as we're going through a book. And so rather than uh, jump back into Philippians for one week and disrupt the momentum of the text, I'm going to continue to build on what we've been discussing over the past several weeks by going to a text that I preached a few years back, and that's Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. Now, if you're good at math, then you know that Matthew 17 precedes Matthew 18. I know that's mind-blowing, isn't it? That's how it goes. Matthew 17 to Matthew 18. Uh, Why is that important? Well, it's important because Matthew 18 is where Jesus really goes into detail about how the body of Christ is to live with one another while he's away. In fact, it was on the basis of Matthew 18 that I first preached the Body Life series that I preached over the past month uh, a few years back. And the reason I want to go here to Matthew 17 in particular is because of what's happening next week. In case you haven't noticed, we meet in a Presbyterian church. And as I've actually been discussing in Sunday school, Presbyterians don't practice baptism in the same way that Baptists do. Uh, We actually differ in a few different ways, but one significant difference is that we dunk a person under the water when we baptize them. They sprinkle. And again, if you've been in Sunday school, you already know why this is. But what this means practically is that a Presbyterian church doesn't have the facilities to perform the type of baptism that we practice. (laughs) Now, if this were summer, that wouldn't be a problem. In the past, we've gone down to the river after church and done some baptism, uh, done our baptisms there. I doubt anyone would really want to do that in the middle of winter. Uh, So I spoke with Pastor Wright uh, from First Baptist Carthage and asked if we could use their facility. And he suggested that rather than do it in the evening, uh, like we've done in the past with other churches, that we actually come and join them for a joint service on Sunday morning and do the baptism then. Uh, Just so you know, Clint and I have gotten to know uh, Pastor Wright some over the past uh, couple months, and we see eye to eye on a lot of issues, and so we agreed that this would probably be a great idea. So again, that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to go over to First Baptist and participate in this joint service together. 
But before we do that, I thought it'd be a good idea to look at Matthew 17. Because in Matthew 17, Jesus deals with the issues of rights in the kingdom of heaven. Why would that be a worthwhile discussion? Well, I think it's a worthwhile discussion because First Baptist probably does some things different than us. Of course, that's likely the case in the actual structure of their ministry, but even during the worship service, they're going to probably do some things that are different than what we do here at Cornerstone. And as I think you already know, it's very easy in those situations to come at these differences with a critical spirit. And as I think today's passage will show us, that's not appropriate. We should not pollute the worship service with the sort of self-centeredness that gets bothered when things aren't done according to our preferences. Instead, we ought to come with an attitude of humility which asks, how can I put the desires of my brother first? How can I serve them? That's what Jesus tackles for us in today's passage. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Let's begin by reading the passage together. Once again, that's Matthew 17, 24 through 27. Matthew writes this. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher pay the uh, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. You know, there are probably a few statements that are as cherished in our nation as the very famous words from the Declaration of Independence that go like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That statement was written, of course, to explain why our nation was choosing to assert its independence from the rule of Great Britain. And it declares that every single man, woman, and child possesses a certain set of rights which have been given to them by God Himself. This means that no emperor or king or any earthly power can violate any of these rights since they're derived from a higher authority. The claim, of course, when these words were written down was that Great Britain had violated some of these God-given rights in the American colonies. They had violated the political contract established by God, and so on the basis of that breach of contract, the colonies were electing to declare their independence and reorganize themselves under the government of a new nation. And now, ever since those words were written, this concept has occupied a substantial place in the American psyche. We are a people who believe in individual rights. We are a people who not only believe in individual rights, but who are also willing to fight to defend and exercise those rights. If a cop gives us a ticket that we don't think we deserve, we'll fight it in court. If a business partner deceives us, we'll sue. If a bully ever punches us on the, on the playground, we punch back. 
as a people that's more or less in our character. If someone treats us unjustly, if they either intentionally or even inadvertently violate our personal rights, we won't take it lying down. We fight back. In fact, a lot of times we don't even have to be wronged to do this. Sometimes we can be the offender. We can be the one in the wrong. We can be the one who's violated someone else's rights. But even then, we'll still try to find some kind of loophole in the contract, some kind of procedural violation in the enforcement of one policy or another. And then we'll try to use that to exonerate ourselves from our misbehavior. That's just who we are as a people. We're very passionate about our rights. So that's our culture as American, the concept of individual rights and the belief that we should fight for those rights. That's at the very core of our value system. But what about our culture as Christians? Should that be a part of our value system? What does the Bible have to say about how rights should be exercised in the kingdom of heaven? Do we have rights? If so, when do we fight for them? And when, if ever... Do we let them go? These are the questions we're going to explore this morning from Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. In this passage, Jesus is asked to pay a tax. He's asked to pay a tax that he's not obligated to pay. And in his response, he's going to show us how he approached the issue of individual rights. He sets the tone for us. He serves as our example. Shows us how we should approach this issue. So what's the example that he sets for us? Let's go ahead and read the passage one more time. Matthew says this. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons? Or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This morning's passage can be broken down into three basic parts there's a question, a correction, and a concession. A question, a correction, and a concession. The question occurs in verses 24 and 25 when these two tax collectors come to Peter and ask him if Jesus pays this particular type of tax, and Peter answers yes. And just to be clear, this doesn't appear to be a hostile question. In other words, we've all read instances where the religious leaders would attempt to trap Jesus by asking him a question. They'll often try to put him to the test with a particularly tricky question, but that's not what's happening here. The way this question is asked in the Greek, these men expect Peter to say yes. Essentially, they're saying, now Jesus pays the tax, right? That's how they ask this. So this doesn't seem to be a test. They're being completely respectful in the way they present this question. They just sincerely want to know whether or not Jesus pays the tax. Now, you may wonder then why they would even bother asking this question if it isn't to provoke Jesus. And the reason is because this particular tax had some controversy attached to it. You see, this two drachma tax, which was collected about a month or so before Passover, was 
the equivalent of about two days' wages, and it was collected from every Jewish male over the age of 20, both in Palestine and abroad, anywhere in the dispersion. They all had to pay this tax for the maintenance of the temple. And the reason why that was so controversial was because there doesn't seem to be any basis in the Scripture for this tax. In Exodus 30, God commanded Israel to take a census and to pay a half a shekel for every male as a ransom for his life to the Lord. That would be the equivalent of about this two drachma tax. And that money was to be used for the service of the tent of meeting. So you have that command in Exodus 30, but that was intended to be a one-time collection. It was supposed to happen during the Exodus. It didn't necessarily continue on after that. In Nehemiah 10, an annual tax was instituted to help maintain the temple, but that tax was only a third of a shekel, not a half a shekel, which again was what the two drachma tax was, a half shekel. So sometime during the second temple period, the Pharisees apparently started a movement to begin collecting this half shekel or two drachma tax, which occurs in Exodus 30, on an annual basis. And while it would seem that most Jewish males observed this tax, not all did. Uh, one Jewish sect at Qumran, for instance, uh, believed that the tax should only be paid once in a person's life, not annually. Uh, the Sadducees believed it should only be paid voluntarily. And that seems to be the backdrop for this question. These tax collectors have heard about Jesus' teaching. They've heard how he takes issue with the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees, the traditions of Israel's religious leaders. And so they're not sure whether or not Jesus accepts the popular position on the tax. So as they go around to collect, they ask Peter, what about Jesus? What does he think? Does he pay it or not? Peter assumes the answer is yes. He tells the tax collectors, yeah, Jesus pays this. And then he goes home. Maybe he just steps inside. If this all occurs right outside the house there in Capernaum, we don't really know, but he walks inside the house where he's staying at in Capernaum with Jesus. And when he gets inside, Jesus greets him with a question. And with this question, Jesus shows Peter that he actually wasn't entirely right in the answer he gave. Now, he wasn't necessarily wrong either. He gave the right answer, but he apparently gave it for the wrong reasons. Peter assumed that Jesus would pay the tax because the tax was binding on all Jewish males. Jesus was a Jewish male. He upheld the law, so of course he paid the tax. That's what Peter thought it would seem. That's Peter's reason for saying yes. But that wasn't Jesus' reason for saying yes. There were some things that Peter misunderstood when he gave his answer, and if he had understood them, then he would have realized that the answer to this question is not as simple as he thought. Truth is, if Peter understood the issues that were at play in a question like this one, if he had understood it in the same way that Jesus understood it, then he probably would have stopped and, and went and asked Jesus how to answer this question because the answer is a lot more complicated than it seems. And Jesus wants Peter to know this. So he asks this question, Jesus. He, he says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? That's a simple question. Kings don't tax their own family members, right? Princes don't pay taxes. If anything, princes collect taxes. Taxes are used to support the king and his government. So, of course, they don't tax their family. They tax other people. Other people pay them to govern. Again, this isn't a complicated question. 
But Jesus wants to make a point by way of analogy. He wants to demonstrate even that Peter should know the answer to this question. He wants to teach Peter how to think through issues like this one. And so he asks this simple question that's going to help Peter reason through the way this should have been handled. He says, who do kings collect taxes from? From their sons or from others? And Peter answers. Again, it's a simple question. Peter knows the answer. He says, well, from others. Jesus then responds in verses 26 and 27 by saying, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So that's the question. Now Jesus answers this misunderstanding by Peter, and there's basically two parts of this answer. Again, first there's a correction, and then there's a concession. Let's look first at the correction. That comes in verse 26 when Jesus says, Then the sons are free. The point is implied rather than explicit. If the sons of earthly kings are not required to pay taxes because the tax system is designed in part to support them, then what about Jesus? Should he be required to pay the temple tax? After all, Peter, of all people, should know. Jesus is not just another subject in the kingdom of heaven. He's the Christ. In fact, he's more than the Christ. He's God's son. As it says in John 1.14, when Jesus was born, the word became flesh and dwelt, or more literally, he tabernacled amongst us. And by this point in the gospel, Peter should understand this. After all, he not only proclaimed Jesus as the Christ in chapter 16 of Matthew, but he's also witnessed the unveiled glory of Christ earlier, right here in chapter 17. In other words, the temple system is for Jesus. So why should he pay the temple tax? I mean, for God to require this type of tax from Jesus, that would be like Caesar taxing his own family. It doesn't make any sense. So that's the correction here. Peter tells the tax collectors, yes, Jesus pays the tax because he thinks the tax applies to Jesus. And Jesus then gently corrects Peter by saying, actually, the tax doesn't apply to me. And in that, he doesn't really address the legality of the tax one way or the other. Instead, he sidesteps the issue entirely, and he says, even if it did apply, it still wouldn't apply to me. Jesus is above the system. It revolves around him. He's the Lord of all of this. So contrary to what Peter thinks, Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax, but he still will. He still will. And he explains why in verse 27. When he says, however, to give no offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So after correcting Peter by demonstrating that he doesn't have to pay the tax, he then moves on and makes a concession by saying he will pay the tax. Now we should probably note at this point that it isn't Jesus exactly who pays the tax, right? After all, he tells Peter to go and catch a fish, and he explains that the fish is going to have a shekel in its mouth. That's enough to pay this tax both for Peter and for Jesus. Jesus tells Peter to pay the tax with that. So it's not as if Jesus is paying this tax out of his own pocket, is he? And that's important. It's it's, it's God, actually, who's doing this for him. He's paying the tax for Jesus through the miraculous provision of money. That matters because Jesus really shouldn't pay this tax. 
There's a sense in which it would be inappropriate for him to pay it. It would be inappropriate for God's son to pay this tax because it doesn't apply to him. And paying it could imply that he's claiming to be something less than the son of God. And that's not true. But that being said, Jesus is still willing to play along. And he explains why at the beginning of verse 27. He says, however, not to give offense. And then he tells Peter how to go and get this coin. That's the reason why Jesus pays the tax, even though he's not obligated. It's so that he won't create an offense. He doesn't want his refusal to pay the tax to be a stumbling block. Understand, at this stage in his ministry, Jesus is offering the kingdom to Israel. In fact, uh, I won't get into the details here this morning, but I tend to think that this event occurs earlier in Jesus' ministry. I've said this before. Uh, Matthew tends to intentionally rearrange material in order to make a point. He doesn't mean to present this gospel in chronological order. And I tend to think that chronologically this event occurred earlier in Jesus' ministry, back before Jesus began to completely shut down the religious leaders. So the idea is that Jesus is actually calling on Israel to repent and believe in him so that he might provide them with the kingdom that he's promised to them for so long. And he doesn't want the potential confusion created by this issue to be a stumbling block to that repentance. Perhaps he means that he doesn't want these tax collectors to be offended by Peter's rash response. You know, like Peter said that Jesus would go ahead and pay the tax, and so maybe Jesus doesn't want to create offense by reneging on that agreement. More than likely, though, Jesus doesn't want to give the impression that he doesn't honor God's commands. That's the offense that he's trying to avoid. After all, that's what people would have been saying about Jesus, what they would have said about him by this point in his ministry. People heard about Jesus' position on things like Sabbath. They saw his acceptance of men like Matthew, Levi, and they would have heard about his disagreement with the Pharisees' system of righteousness, and they would have said in response to all that, you know, Jesus really isn't concerned about the law. Jesus doesn't care about righteousness, and that wasn't true about Jesus at all. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. So he stood against the, some of the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, but that wasn't because he was lowering the standard of righteousness. If, if anything, he was demanding a higher one. Again, that's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that the righteousness he demands exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And if a person didn't meet that, then they won't enter into the kingdom. So Jesus wasn't lowering the bar, but that's how his actions were often interpreted. People thought, because he didn't follow in the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, that he wasn't all that serious about righteousness. By the way, that's actually pretty typical of religious people. They can have a lot of traditions that they've developed over the years, and they'll assume that if you don't hold those positions, those traditions, then you must not be very serious about righteousness. Well, Jesus understands this, and he doesn't want that wrong perception to unnecessarily cloud the issue about the kingdom that he's presenting. So even though he's not bound to pay the tax, he still agrees to pay it so as not to create offense, so as not to confuse the issue by making people think he's not concerned about righteousness. Now I want you to think about the humility in that response for a few moments. 
Jesus is the Son of God. Meaning that the temple is his father's house. So he's exempt from that system. In fact, if anything, the taxes that are collected should be paid to him. The system really should exalt Jesus. It should recognize and honor him. Jesus is worthy of that. Jesus is rightly an object of worship, meaning the praise, the glory, the adoration that's due to the Father which the temple system celebrates, that should be directed at Jesus as well since he's God's son. So he should be recognized and honored and exalted. But instead, when the time comes to pay the tax, what does he do? Does he demand recognition? Does he assert his right to be worshipped? I mean, do you understand this? Does, does he demand his rightful place, his rightful place of honor by refusing to submit to this tax as if he were some kind of commoner, as if he were just another face in the crowd, no different from me or you? Now, what does he do? He pays the tax. He deserves, he deserves to be recognized in worship, but instead he pays the tax and acts like he isn't anything special, like he's just another face in the crowd. And you understand, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's not what Jesus deserves. But he does it anyways. And the simple reason is because he doesn't want to create an offense. He does it because he doesn't want the exercise of his rights to be a cause of someone else stumbling on their way into the kingdom. He doesn't want to make it more difficult for someone to enter, any more difficult than it has to be. He's more concerned that others have the opportunity to repent and be saved than he is about his own glory in this instance. And so he surrenders his right and lays that down for their benefit. Again, I hope you understand what he's doing here. He's doing more than just turning down recognition in this, in this moment. He's actually turning down what he's owed. He's suffering loss for the sake of others. I mean, really, this is humiliating. If you stop to think about it, what he's doing here is humiliating. It's an indignity for the Son of God to pay this. This tax is degrading. And Jesus does it anyways. And he does it because in accepting that indignity, he prevents a stumbling block from being put in front of the people of Israel. Love, brothers and sisters. That is why Jesus does this. He considers others as more important than himself. And so even though he doesn't deserve, deserve this, he still does it because of the great benefit that it will produce for others. Again, think about that. Whose fault, I want to ask you, whose fault would it be if Israel stumbled over Jesus' refusal to pay this tax? Would it be Jesus' fault that they couldn't accept the sort of claims that Jesus was making here? Absolutely not. I mean, he's provided them with every sign and wonder and teaching possible to demonstrate who he really is. I mean, if Israel can't accept Jesus' glorified position, like if he says here, I'm not going to pay this, and then they stumble over that, that's really their problem. They're too slow. They're too stubborn. They're too hard-hearted to acknowledge the obvious. Their weakness is really their fault. They're to blame for it. But that doesn't matter to Jesus. 
Their sin, their sin may be the reason for this stumbling block, but Jesus defers nonetheless. He experiences indignity when he doesn't deserve it so that he, they might not stumble when they do deserve it. Listen, that's grace. That's love. And to suffer because of someone else's weakness in sin so that they can receive the benefit, that's love. And it's that kind of love that Jesus expects of his disciples as well. It's not just something he practices, it's something he expects of his disciples as well. Understand, context is everything in Matthew. Again, he'll intentionally rearrange material out of its chronological order along certain themes and place it along various backgrounds to make a point. Now, whether or not Matthew was doing that in this particular event, the point's the same. This event occurs in a section of Matthew that's primarily concerned not with Christology, meaning not with the, the, the theology of Christ, but rather discipleship. This is a prelude to Matthew 18. And that should help us understand the reason for the inclusion of this story in this gospel. No other gospel writer, by the way, includes this event. Only Matthew does. And he includes it because Jesus' response here teaches a very important example for his disciples to follow. In other words, there's a Christological element to this story. We do learn something of Jesus' authority with this response, but that's not the point. The point is what Jesus does with his authority. He doesn't exercise it. He lays it down for the sake of these tax collectors. And in doing that, he's setting an example for Peter and for the rest of the disciples about how they should handle these types of situations. That's the point here. It's not the, the Christological part of the story as much as the practical one. How Jesus' response here is supposed to be applied. And just so you know, for Matthew's audience, that's going to have a different connotation than what's happening here with Jesus. I mean, so Jesus is exempt from the temple tax, but did, what does that have to do with the rest of the disciples, right? I mean, God also provides payment for Peter here, but I don't think we should therefore assume that Peter is also exempt from the tax. Jesus says the tax doesn't apply to him, not because the tax isn't binding, but because he's personally exempt. And the implication is that Jesus is only excused because of the extraordinary circumstances that apply specifically to him. He's not abolishing the tax. He's not even questioning its legality. He's claiming an exemption based on his status as God's son. Obviously, that doesn't apply to anyone else, right? That doesn't apply to the rest of us. Presumably, there are people who are citizens of the kingdom who don't share Jesus' status as son, at least not in the same way that he does, and so one would think that at the very least, the tax would still apply to them. The same cannot be said, however, about Matthew's readers who are receiving this account after Jesus' crucifixion and before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Matthew addresses this temple tax. Think about this. He addresses this temple tax at a point in time that would have made this lesson incredibly relevant to his leaders, or to his readers, rather. Again, I don't think we uh, think a lot about this. I mean, after all, the temple doesn't exist today, so there's no reason to have a temple tax to maintain it. But understand, Matthew's writing to Jewish Christians, Christians who would pay this tax, and he's writing to them before the destruction of the temple. And that would have made this particular issue very relevant to them. So he's writing them at a time when the, 
the tax would have still been taken, meaning these Jewish believers would have had to decide whether or not they pay a tax like this one. And he's writing to them after Jesus' death on the cross, meaning he's writing to them after the Mosaic law has been fulfilled, completed, replaced by the new covenant. The temple system's over. They know it. So these are Jews that are no longer bound by the law. These are Jews who understand the former temple system's obsolete. They understand they're not obligated to pay things like this tax. And not because they're exempt in the same way that Jesus is, but because the system no longer applies. It's over. So should they pay the tax when their Jewish brethren come around asking them for two drachmas to send to Jerusalem? What should they do? After all, they're no longer required to pay it. I mean, Jesus just put an end to that system at the cross. So should they refuse? Should they make a, a point by asserting their rights and declaring their freedom from the law? No, Matthew indicates they should pay the tax. I mean, why would they do that? I mean, why should they give up two days' wages? Think about that. Two days' wages. Why should they give that up for nothing? And Matthew would answer, well, well because it's not for nothing. It helps prevent offense. It demonstrates to their Jewish brothers that in saying that they're no longer under the law in Christ, that they're not unconcerned with righteousness. It keeps them from misinterpreting the gospel. But that's not fair, you can hear them say, and no, it isn't fair. It isn't fair. But that's grace. And that's love. And according to the New Testament, this is actually the point of freedom from the law. The reason that we've been freed from Moses is not so that Christians can now go around and do whatever they want since all their sin has been punished in Jesus. No, the point is that through Christ they are now free from the restrictions of that former system so that they may in every way serve others for the magnification of the gospel and to the praise and glory of God. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, the point of our freedom, brothers and sisters, is love. We are free from the law's restrictions so that we might love other people, and to love them in particular by removing any potential stumbling block necessary for them to hear and understand the gospel with great clarity. That's what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. I want to read a couple of passages from Paul here where he talks about this. Listen to this. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Uh, to those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, um, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Again, that's how Paul interpreted his freedom. It didn't mean he went and did whatever he wanted. 
and mean that he went and became a slave to all, servant to all, so that he might win more of them. He says as well in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So again, the Christian is free from the law's restrictions, not its demands per se. Let me make that clear. Not free from its demands per se, but from its regulations and stipulations. And we are free not so that we can serve ourselves, but so that we can serve others. As Paul says, we're free from all, but we are free from all so that we might make ourselves a servant to all and so might win more of them. So what should we take away from this morning's passage? Well, I think there's two core lessons here. And the first lesson is this. Number one, every Christian must be willing to remove any known stumbling block from their life. Let me say that one more time. Every Christian should be willing. I'll even change that. It's not should. They must. They must be willing to remove any known stumbling block from their life. Jesus expects his disciples to be aware of how their actions affect other people. And not just in terms of direct sin, not just in terms of words or deeds that they've done intentionally, like actively malicious sin. No, he expects them to be aware of how their actions may indirectly affect others as well through some type of misunderstanding. You see, it's, it's possible to harm someone spiritually without ever intending it just by being unaware of how your actions can be perceived by other people. Even well-intended actions, they can be perceived wrongly in the right context. And then a person's relationship with God can be damaged. It can be damaged from the reckless actions of another Christian just from them not taking time to think about what their actions look like to other people. Jesus expects his disciples to take the time to be considerate of that possibility. He expects them to be conscientious about their faith. He expects them to think through how their actions can skew other people's perceptions about God, even the ones that they're free to take, even the actions that are okay for them to do. And then he expects them to avoid any such action. That's what he's modeling here. He's not required to pay this tax but he pays it anyway so as not to create a misconception. That's what he's modeling here, is what he expects of the rest of his disciples as well. You actually see this attitude modeled throughout the New Testament. In Acts 15, for instance, when the Jerusalem Council gathers to determine whether or not uh, Gentiles should have to abide by the law, it's wholeheartedly agreed that the answer is no. But then they still ask the Gentiles to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And why did they ask this? James answers in verse 21 saying, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, and he's read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the Gentiles are accepted in God's kingdom apart from adherence to the law of Moses. But they're still asked to refrain from some of the things outlined in that law in large part because it would be a stumbling block to the Jews. 
Paul encourages similar thinking in places like 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. For example, regarding food sacrifice to idols, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. If you go ahead, uh, would, go ahead and turn there, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Regarding food sacrifice to idols, Paul says this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul essentially says, look, I know that you know that there's no such thing as other gods. And in eating this meat, you're neither honoring another god, nor are you intending to. So in that sense, it's fine. I get it. You're not sinning when you eat the meat. I get it. However, he says, starting in verse 7, but not all possess this knowledge. Not everyone understands this point as you. And then he goes on to explain how to continue to eat this meat and or to explain that to continue to eat this meat in front of those who think it's a sin will cause them to stumble and fall into sin. And then he concludes verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul instructs the Corinthians to avoid these kinds of stumbling blocks for the sake of their brothers. And in chapter 10, by the way, he extends that to unbelievers as well. He tells the Corinthians to avoid any stumbling blocks, not just before other believers, but before unbelievers as well, so that those stumbling blocks don't get in the way of their understanding of the gospel. This is the standard practice by Christ's disciples that Jesus expects you to adhere to. In fact, it's, it's more than an expectation. I should make this clear. He doesn't just expect you to do this. He demands it. He demands it. And I think we should also understand that, that this includes just more than just the exercise of our liberties. That's the particular subject in places like Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 8. But I think it's more than fair to say that, that this principle goes beyond that point as well. Uh, in a sense, uh, taking the spiritual well-being of others into consideration of the exercise of your liberties, I mean, that's an extreme. When we do that, we're taking into consider, uh, consideration actions that are entirely permissible, things that we're allowed to do in the sense that, uh, uh, that are things that we're allowed to do that could damage someone else's faith. Well, if we're to avoid stumbling blocks at that level, even when we're talking about things that aren't necessarily sin, well, then we most definitely need to consider how actual sin that we commit in our lives can cause others to stumble as well and remove those things too. I mean, that's basically assumed. Of course, we need to avoid those sins that cause others to stumble. We can't forget this point. You need to think of not only how your liberties can affect others and remove that stumbling block, but sins as well. The only thing, Christian, that should be offensive about you, either to your brothers or to the world, should be the gospel. 
It should be the cross. It should be Christ. Jesus' authority, God's demand for repentance from the heart, the need for grace, the cross, these are things that Jesus would not back down on. He would surrender everything else if necessary, but not these. He would stand his ground on these. He would suffer and die before he backed down on these points. He would offend people on these points. And he often did. The reason why he was killed, because these concepts were offensive and he would not back down on them. And the reason he wouldn't back down on those is because those points are essential to the gospel. They're non-negotiable. They're necessary to the extent that if you surrender any of them, you've lost the gospel. Again, the goal is salvation. And Jesus would surrender whatever is necessary to help a person repent. Obviously, that can't include things that are essential to the gospel. So don't misunderstand me when I'm saying this. My point here is not to say be as unoffensive as possible as a Christian. The point, rather, is to be offensive but to be offensive about the right things and in the right ways. And that means that if possible, the only thing that should be a stumbling block to those around you is the actual message of salvation itself. Once again, this is the first lesson to take away from this passage. You must remove any known stumbling block from your life. I think the greater lesson, though, the one that we as Christians need to keep repeating to ourselves and repeating often, often, is the second lesson. And that lesson is this. Every Christian must surrender their rights for the sake of the gospel. Every Christian must surrender their rights for the sake of the gospel. That's what Jesus expects of you. He expects you to surrender your rights for the advancement of His kingdom. Remember, this stumbling block that Jesus removed from before the tax collectors here? It's not sin. Again, Jesus wasn't obligated to pay the tax. So if the tax collector stumbled over Jesus' refusal to pay, he wouldn't be stumbling over some sin on Jesus' part. No, he was exempt from the tax. He didn't have to pay it. He paid anyways, though. He didn't have to pay, and yet he gave up his privilege. He gave up his right for the sake of whoever was watching so as not to give them an offense. And again, I want you to understand the significance of this. Jesus is not just giving up his rights, not just surrendering his privilege to those who are worthy of this sacrifice and love. Again, if the tax collectors or anyone else can't accept the claim that Jesus is making, that's not his fault, that's theirs. It's because of their weakness, because of their stubbornness, even their sin. And yet Jesus surrenders his right to them anyways. It doesn't matter what the reason is for their inability to accept Jesus. All that matters is that Jesus' response would be a stumbling block and Jesus doesn't want that. It doesn't matter who it is or what the real cause is for their stumbling. He won't contribute in any way to that stumbling, even inadvertently. Listen, Brothers and sisters, he demands that exact same level of sacrifice, the exact same level of sacrifice from every single one of you. Paul points out as, points out as much at the conclusion of his discussion on Christian liberty in Romans 14. If you would, please turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. In Romans 14... Paul goes into great detail explaining how we as Christians should exercise our liberties 
in light of the weaknesses of others. And as he concludes that discussion, he writes this, Romans 15, 1 through 3. Look here. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. Now, do you hear what Paul's saying here? The strong, he says. The strong, that's the mature brother or sister in Christ. They have an obligation. Meaning it's not a suggestion. Paul's not saying, well, you know, if you really want to go the extra mile, then you can do this. No, it's a requirement. What he's saying here is not super special righteousness. It's the minimum threshold. Do you hear me? It's an obligation for the mature Christian. They must do this. They have an obligation, Paul says, quote, to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Again, understand what he's saying. The strong are not allowed. They are not allowed to get frustrated with the weak one for being weak. They're not permitted to respond to their weakness by saying, now what's their problem? I mean, they're so stupid. There's no way I'm going to change my actions because of their immaturity, because of their ignorance. No, he says the strong are obligated to bear with those feelings and not to please themselves. Think about this. What's your attitude? What's your attitude towards weaker Christians who don't know as much as you? Or who aren't as mature as you? Do you get frustrated with them? You know, when they start, start you know, telling you you need to abide by some particular thing that you know that you don't have to abide by, do you write them off? Tell them to grow up and then go about your business expecting them to rise to you? If so, listen, you're the immature one. You're the one not meeting your obligation. You're the one in sin. Now look at how Paul continues. Why should we live like this? Why should the mature condescend to the weak and surrender what's rightfully theirs because of the immaturity of another? He explains in verses 2 through 3, saying, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. Look at what he says there. You do this, Paul says, because that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus didn't please himself. He didn't demand that sinners give him what he was owed. No, he bore the burden of their sin. He took the consequences of their sin and he absorbed all of that. And he did that so that they might live. And he did that not only on the cross, but even throughout his life through things like this temple tax. And in doing this, he not only saved you, Christian, he also set an example for you to follow as well. Jesus demands that you set aside all your so-called rights, that you would, in the words of Paul, make yourself a slave to all so that you might win more to Christ. And Jesus demands this because this is what he did for you. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says in Philippians 2, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus demands of you. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says. That's what Jesus wants from you. And he demands it because this is what he did for you. I hope you can understand the importance of this. What we're hitting at here, I think, actually strikes at the very core of Christianity. If you want to understand the Christian ethic and how we live, this is at the very basis of it. Selfless love, right? Gracious compassion. And I mean that in the true sense of the word gracious compassion. I mean undeserved compassion. That's what our faith is about. That's what Christ is about. Meaning that if you can't live this way, if you can't demonstrate this kind of grace to other people, then you have no business, and I mean absolutely no business, calling yourself a Christian. I mean, whatever you do, don't dare call yourself by Christ's name and then refuse to love in the way that he loved. It's hypocrisy, it's sin, and it's a very serious stumbling block to the world. And if you think I'm exaggerating when I say that, I'd have you note what Jesus says in Matthew 18, just a few verses later, about the one who cavalierly places a stumbling block in front of one of his little ones. Jesus doesn't mince words there. He says that the one who doesn't love this way, the one who causes one of his little ones to stumble because they refuse to bear their weaknesses and remove any offense in their life, he says it's better for that person to have a millstone fastened around their neck and then tossed into the sea. He's very serious about this. Again, this is non-negotiable for Christians. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you must do this. It's an obligation. It's an obligation to the degree that if you refuse to love in this way, then you very well may not be a Christian. You may not understand the gospel at all. Personally, I think a lot of us probably have a good amount of repenting to do. Again, this isn't normal for us. And I don't just mean this in the sense that we're all sinners. I mean, culturally, this is a very unusual way to think. We exalt the idea of exercising our personal rights and freedoms. Jesus says, if necessary, give them all away. Every single one, just give them all away. I don't think too many Christians probably do this. And very, very often, and sadly, I don't think we even bat an eye about it. Most of the time, it's normal for us to live this way. To demand what's ours. But listen, friends, normal's bad. Normal's dangerous. And we need to be different. We need to display radical love, sacrificial love to the world. After all, this is how Jesus said that the world would know that we're his disciples, right? By whether or not we have love for one another. Sadly, I don't think that's true for a lot of the church. Many times we're known for our divisiveness. We're known for being petty. We're known for talking a good game, but having very little to back it up in the quality of our lives. We're known for the demands that we make, not the privileges that we surrender. And that's wrong. Listen, Christian, you must get past this idea that you'll love other people once it's convenient or that you shouldn't have to change for anyone else that's not a Christian. That's the exact opposite of Christ-likeness. And with that in mind, I'd like to close this morning by praying that we'd be different. Let's ask that God would make us unique, that He'd help us to stand apart from our culture, 
by practicing truly sacrificial love, both towards one another and to the world. Let's pray.